ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. We are so far down the rabbit hole of who's telling the truth and who's lying that I actually think both the Kremlin and Donald Trump's objectives are nearly achieved, which is nobody knows what to believe, so nobody believes anything. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP columnist Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and The Military Became Everything. Also here in Washington is David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Have any episode ideas, comments, questions? Send us any good ideas you've got, and we might even send you one of those coveted ER mugs. We'll be awarding five of them each week. You'll email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow, we had the following (laughs) conversation. (laughs) Um, oh, what are we going to talk about? We started right <laughs> off where I knew you would. What are, are we going to so, Well done, David. Thank yeah. you. So, David, this dossier on Donald Trump, about which no reputable media organization will refer, um, uh, has been floating around for a long time, right? Uh, I've had it for a couple months. You, and you didn't tell us. You didn't, you didn't ask. <laughs> um, David didn't call up and say, what do you know? What secret dossier do you have? at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So so why didn't you write about it? I mean, it, you could write, we have this thing. It's not proven, but it could be relevant and, you know, so on. Why don't people, like, publish stuff like that? Well, maybe in foreign policy they do. They surely would have had you told us. Maybe the answer, David, is it didn't appear in the New York Times for the same reason it didn't appear in foreign policy, for the same reason it didn't appear in the Washington Post, for the same reason that CNN didn't actually even discuss the contents of it when they revealed the other day that there was a sort of remarkable, strange briefing in which – the intel officials go in and say to the president-elect, look, we don't necessarily believe any of this, but you should just know it's out there. Okay, So um, 
The reason we didn't was that we pursued a number of the specifics in them, and it turned out that we couldn't <laughs> yeah. confirm how any of them. And how we did are, you do that? And, and we are and we are so <laughs> old fashioned. We are so old fashioned that we actually hesitate publishing stories that we can't confirm and don't necessarily believe. You are ill suited so for the era of fake news. Yeah, uh, sure. And so sure. long as it's not about germophobia, go ahead. Oh my God, no. Um, my question is, were you in the investigations able to determine that the information is untrue or could you simply not provide positive affirmation? Mostly the Positive la- confirmation. Mostly the latter. Say. We did have people say, you know, I wasn't in this city on such and such a date as alleged and, and so forth. But um, most of it was just sort of unprovable. And when you talk to the people who worked on putting together the dossier – it's not entirely clear to me that they were getting it from what you would call firsthand sources. Uh, the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal has reported in recent times that most of this was written by a former MI6 um, officer uh, who— Actually, the former MI6 Russia desk chief. Russia desk chief who had also been in Moscow for a good part of his career, who um, has a very good reputation within MI6. Uh, we checked him out fairly carefully, and uh, people who had worked with him said he was a very serious player. But most of the data that he got uh, was itself somewhat secondhand, and he does not have free reign to enter uh, Russia these days for obvious reasons. Uh, so he was working with sources by phone, people who he knew, and developed this set of uh, short memos that together sort of make up the, the dossier. So, Corey, you're an informed reader. You're out there in California. You read things. You're intelligent. You know how this all works. When you read the statement yesterday by General Clapper about this, he didn't actually say that it wasn't true, did he? I mean, what, what are you taking away from all of this hubbub? Uh, what I am taking away from it is three things. First, how worried the intelligence community is about the potential compromise of Donald Trump and the people closest to him, uh, a concern they have not had with previous American presidents and and being influenced or potentially blackmailed by foreign governments. Second, that for all of the excitement about some of the more remarkable things in it, the second thing that I took away from it was just how pervasive his his business linkages in Russia potentially are. And I thought the more important and interesting Revelations were not from the dossier, but from an article in the American Interest that traced down very carefully uh, business linkages with with very shady and potentially criminal Russian businessmen. But wait a minute, Donald Trump. No, but we'll let you get to the third thing in a second. Donald Trump tweeted out, "I have no Russia ties, no deals, no nothing." He denied it. He also said that the Kremlin denied it. So none of this can be true, Corey. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, relying on the Kremlin as your verification mechanism, I think, was bad strategy at this point or at any point, quite frankly. Also, about the Trump denials, his son publicly a couple of years ago in an on-the-record talk talked at some length about their Russian business loans and how much of their portfolio was held by Russians. So I don't think Donald Trump is telling the truth in his refutations. My third big point, though, is that we are so far down the rabbit hole of who's telling the truth and who's lying that I actually think both the Kremlin and Donald Trump's objectives are nearly achieved, which is nobody knows what to believe, so nobody believes anything. And it's so corrosive to the trust that free societies require in their institutions and in their public engagement that I am genuinely worried. So that would be a home run for Putin, right, Rosa? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Um, I The only thing that I think Putin may have erred in, uh, in the let's assume that there was, in fact, a Russian effort to collect compromising information on Donald Trump. And why not assume that? I mean, foreign intelligence services frequently do that. And, and Trump's a sufficiently powerful person, wealthy person, even before he ran for president, that it makes perfect sense that the Russians would do that independent of any ties, any other agenda. And I think it's pretty much on the record. Yeah. He's a complete sleazebag, and right? And, well, see, there you go. So that's, that's Putin's big mistake, right, is assuming that it is possible to compromise Donald Trump. I don't think it is possible to blackmail Donald Trump. Trump, because so far, I have yet to discover anything that appears to be embarrassing to him. There, there seems to be nothing. So we're, it's not just that we're now in this post-truth world in which the New York Times, uh, Breitbart, they're all fake news and nobody believes anything. It's also that it doesn't matter anymore because we now have a, an about-to-be president who I think if, if you were to present him with incontrovertible evidence that, in fact, all of these compromising things that he is alleged to have done had happened, he would shrug and say, yeah. <laughs> What's how your much, issue? I told you I love much, women. Tell me how much worse it is than the Entertainment Tonight Right. Tape. No, yeah. precisely. So, so, precisely. So, so essentially it's, what you're saying is the post-truth world is also the post-scandal post world. Yes. How do you blackmail someone who's shameless? You can't. And that is our that is the best safeguard of our national future. Is that <laughs> uh, excellent? And 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 I I do think it actually it raises a really interesting question. Uh, you know, everyone now is is talking about the the old novel and film, the Manchurian Candidate, the idea that one might have an elected president who is in fact controlled by a foreign power. Here we have Trump essentially saying. Uh, the president can't have a conflict of interest. And there's a level on which he's right, obviously. You know, if the American people don't mind somebody who is a puppet of a foreign power, well, what is there left to say? No, this is fantastic. He should have <laughs> run saying, I'm so rich, I can't be bribed. I'm so sleazy, I can't, I can't be, be compromised. David. Well, he did the first part of that. He basically did run on he that did the, he, did, he ran on part one. Okay. Okay. He, he, he said outright, I don't need to take money from people. The whole campaign system is corrupt. Can't argue with him on that. Uh, I'm financing my own campaign, which he did until he didn't. And uh, so, you know, on that part. On the second part, it just became sort of evident during the course of the revelations of the campaign, which were not enough 
to dissuade uh, the kind of number of voters that I think the Clinton campaign thought it would dissuade. Okay, but but let me let me stop you here because you know we're caught we're talking around this whole thing, but you know this is the ER and there's nobody listening, so we can you know it's like a bar. We can sit here, we can open up a, l- a little bit about it, and so you know everybody's like, oh, you know, golden showers. Wow, that's really exciting, and uh, you know Trump and prostitutes and in, in 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 Moscow, and literally nobody that I know in Washington doesn't believe that Trump got hooked up with prostitutes in Moscow and half a dozen other places. But that's not the important part of the story. It seems to me that the elements about Trump's team having contact with the Russians during the campaign is more substantive. And it seemed to me that James Comey, another one of the stars of the last campaign, in his congressional testimony, which, by the way, included the stunning moment when he said, we don't talk about ongoing investigations, which <laughs> except was, when we do, except <laughs> except when it's the other candidate. They sought visa warrants on, on four of these people, right? They're actually investigating this. It looks like there's actually a real investigation going on in this. And this is one of those things where my sort of Washington bat sense tells me trouble looms ahead for Trump. Because what You're such happen- an optimist, David. Yeah, that's true. And here's why. Because what happens is you get one of these things going, and at some point somebody asks one of these dudes, did you do something? And they say, no, I didn't. You know, People don't get brought down in Washington for the crime. It's always the cover-up. And this is one of those areas where the, you know, you've got a bunch of people who seem like they would be really likely – to engage in that kind of behavior. Now, is my bat sense like off and this is completely a new era and, and you know, everybody in the Trump team is Teflon like Rosa says? Well, your sense may be exactly right, but what we publish from is facts. And what we knew from these dossiers was a set of things that we pursued and couldn't confirm. We knew the FBI had the exact same material that we did. We talked with them. They were running into the same blockades we were. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It means that it may well mean that we weren't good enough to go get it figured out. But um, they, they, they and the CIA may also have some sources that are different from yours. They may well have. And uh, I thought it was sort of interesting that you did not see uh, General Clapper in his statement say that any of the, that material was wrong but what he did say was that they had made this judgment that I've never seen before in the years I've, I've been in Washington. Now, David, you're much older than I am, so you've been here for, for, for lots longer. Um, what a but, motherfucker. <laughs> but, uh, I, think you, I think you hurt his feelings, David. I did. I did. Uh, so, anyway, go So in any case, um, I have never seen a situation where the intel community has talked about briefing a document whose veracity they had no idea about. And the excuse here was to say, we're warning you, Mr. Trump, this is floating around. Lots of reporters have it. Lots of other groups have it. And it gives you a sense of the degree to which the Russians are looking perhaps in the future to embarrass you. I found that a somewhat astounding set of judgments. Astounding is an unmodifiable word, David. It can't be somewhat astounding. Do you know somebody? Do you know somebody suggested that we have a series of mugs 
produced for the ER <laughs> that say things like, you're absolutely right, Corey, or I couldn't disagree more, David, or something like that. <laughs> or you're uh... <laughs> I I I have the same reflex David does on this, which is that two things I found extraordinary. First, that the reason the FBI had the information was because Senator McCain gave them the information. And second, that they chose to brief it, which maybe what we are seeing is that both the FBI and the intelligence agencies think that you know, they're just going to throw stuff out into the public and let voters decide what weight to give to it. But it maybe they're doing the same thing Comey did. But the whole thing seems to me, uh, as it did to David, uh, unusual in the extreme. Yeah, but also it's, you know, it's unusual in, 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 in that respect. Um, but there's a pattern here. And the, the pattern is that Russia allegations of compromise, whether it's a business deal compromise or uh, sexual compromise or some other kind of compromise, have been circling around Trump for months. And that Trump's behavior is exclusively and unwaveringly the behavior of someone who's compromised. Not only has he, on every single occasion that this has come up, defended the Russians and embraced the Russian talking points. Yeah, um, it's but, shocking. But he has done so despite the fact that, as we've heard in, in recent days, most of the people he's nominating to his cabinet don't agree with him. You know, and you've got Mattis and Pompeo and Tillerson, Tillerson all, yeah. all taking a completely different line, which says, by the way, two things to me. One, Trump's behavior is strange for some reason. A, he could be stupid, which I believe is possible. B, he could be enamored of them for some reason. Um, C, he could be compromised. But also there's another th element to this, which is as we listen to Madison, Pompeo and Tillerson, we also are getting the impression that the Trump administration is a complete clusterfuck. None of these people are well, on the, the same page on policy. The, the other interpretation is that he's actually willing to appoint people who have different views and thinks he might learn from them, which I grant you is a long shot. I was going to say, you just accused me of being an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> but he did at least like. Those views were known, at least Mattis's views were known, in advance of the appointment. Let me offer a, a third possibility that um, falls somewhere between Corey's crazy optimism and David's crazy. Uh, and, and that would be um, this, that in Trump you have somebody who does not stick with his views, particularly on foreign policy, for terribly long. Our great example here is that he had very um, hard things to say about continuing torture and waterboarding and all that until General Mattis said to him in a five-minute conversation at the end of their interview, well, I found that waterboarding doesn't, doesn't help and, you know, cigarettes and a, and a Coke might be better and so forth. And all of a sudden, we had Donald Trump when he came to lunch at the New York Times repeating what Mattis told him and having flipped his view on it. Except well, on Russia, 
Russia's view been, okay. has not varied. Right. Let, let's get to Russia. Let's get to Russia in a moment. So what happened yesterday? Rex Tillerson laid out a position on the Iran deal that was within. And by the, the way, folks, by yesterday he means a few days ago, <laughs> depending on when this. When you're appears listening on to the, this, okay. Web, right? Sorry about that. On Wednesday, <laughs> January 11th, Rex Tillerson, in his confirmation hearing, uh, made the case. That, uh, that the Iran deal simply didn't last long enough and needed to be reopened enough to extend it. Well, you could argue about whether that's going to happen or not, but it's a perfectly legitimate sort of mainstream position to take. General Mattis took the position today that he basically wouldn't touch the Iran deal. For now, he's got other things to go to go worry about. All of those are efforts, in my mind, to pull Donald Trump back into the sort of mainstream. And the two who are hanging out out here are the president-elect himself and the national security advisor. Who's a complete loon. Well, we're about to go find out. And one of the things we're about to go find out is, can he think about anything other than the Islamic State? Well, is he thinking about Monica Crowley's plagiarism, his loyal deputy who can't seem to write a word out of her own brain? The uh, I'd be really interested to see what your alma mater does in dealing with her PhD thesis, which is one of those that came up. And then I think we saw Harper Collins pull back on her book. Yeah, it's 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 quite interesting. One of the things, Rosa, that's interesting about all of these, you know, to this testimony, is that both Pompeo, who, by the way, a lot of people I know have talked to, have said very smart guy, very capable appointment, and Mattis, who almost universally be, have said, I have a lot of faith in the intelligence community. In, f- in fact, I think Mattis at one point said in testimony, you know, he's, he's very, very confident in the intelligence community, which seems to be also throwing their boss under the bus a little bit. Well, Tillerson went even further. I mean, Tillerson took the funny position that he said when he was being asked about, say, the executions in the Philippines and whether these were human rights violations, he said, well, I can't just rely on what I read in the New York Times and other journals. I'd have to go see what sort of our classified, you know, briefings are. And he did this on a range of other issues as if there was something magic about documents that have top secret stamped on them, about things that you can see with your eyes open. Well, I think I think several of the uh, senior Trump nominees are are worried. You know, they're worried that they have they have hitched their wagons to a, a loon, and that this could end very badly for for all concerned. And I think that we're seeing a little bit of. You know, people trying to protect themselves if things go south. And I don't think that's such a bad thing to do either, right? Obviously, our, our, our fondest hope collectively at this point in time is that Trump appoints some grown-ups who, who walk him back from the edge. Um, and that's what they're trying to do, both because I think they genuinely want to walk him back from the edge and because if he goes over the edge, they would rather not go with him and they'd rather be able to say – you know, oh, well, I did my duty. I, I wanted to serve my country. I tried. He went over the edge. But this, you know, this to me, Corey, is the the big Trump trap. And it, it may be that, you know, we're like sitting here. Is he going to be compromised by some smut? And, and Rosa may be right. That may be impossible. Is he going to be compromised by his ties to the Russians? I think that's maybe a little bit more possible. But the, but the thing that I really think is going to be the problem for Trump is that so many people around him have a strong interest in abandoning ship, pushing him off the cliff at first sign of trouble, including Putin. 
you know, who undoubtedly has something on Trump. I, we don't know what it is, but he undoubtedly has something on Trump. Mike Pence, the Republicans in Congress, you know, I mean, it, it, you think Paul Ryan would rather have Trump as president or Mike Pence as president? You think Mitch McConnell would rather have Trump or Mike Pence as president? You think Mattis wants his career and his reputation built over 40 years to go down with Trump out of loyalty to Trump? Don't you think there's a trap for Trump in all of this? Yeah, I do, but but we'll see what we'll see how he handles it. I mean, I mean again, you know, my other fond theory is that he may lose interest in being president in the first 5 minutes and just hand it over to everybody else in which case, you know, aside from the occasional crazy tweet, you know, everything is fine. Um but but I think that you've got people like Madison and obviously Corey knows him much better than I do who've got I assume must be thinking you know, I'm supposed to serve my country, and part of serving my country means being a, you know, calm hand at the helm or whatever nautical metaphor Marines might choose. Um, and I'm going to do my best to do that uh, as long as it is possible to do that. How many of these how many of these people have a resignation letter already in their back pocket just in case? Um, my guess is that quite a few of them do. Well, Corey, Rosa made reference to the fact that you've recently put out a book with General Mattis. You know General Mattis well. I don't want you to, like, you know, guess at his behaviors. Or, but in terms of this general issue, do you think Trump's on thinner ice with his team and 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 the Washington establishment than he thinks he is? Yeah, I do. My sense is that just as you describe, oh wait, let me say it in uh, in the mugworthy phrase. You're exactly right, David. I was going to say, David, um, you're looking extremely youthful today. Maria, that's a <laughs> that's a mug. I'd like a mug that says, David, you're looking extremely youthful today. I'll take one of those too, Maria. <laughs> I do think that we, we did note to everybody that Corey's in a remote studio across the country, <laughs> didn't we? <Yeah. laughs> um, I do think it's to President-elect Trump's credit that he has appointed quite a large number of cabinet secretaries, prominently among them John Kelly, Rex Tillerson, and Jim Mattis who can easily walk away from this, um, and if they choose to, it would likely burnish their reputations and damage President Trump's reputations. So he has handed a gun to, to people whose views he knows don't coincide with his. And I actually think he deserves some credit for that. It could be that he did it un- you know, doesn't think people's views matter, and it could be he did it not understanding what he was doing. But if it was a conscious choice, I think it's actually quite meritorious. Well, you know, let's 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 focus on that for a moment here. This is probably the first time in the history of this podcast that anybody said anything nice about Trump, and I want to savor it because it gives us the appearance, however illusory, of being balanced. Um, but. We, we are learning a bunch of things about this Trump administration now because we know who the players are. And indeed, there are some players within this Trump team who are strong, experienced, intelligent, capable people. And we might list Mattis or Kelly or potentially Pompeo or Tillerson among them. 
We also know some other things, however. Um, We know that, for example, he set up the White House with more entities within it than have ever existed within the White House. He not only has the NSC and the NAC, but he set up an International Trade Council. He's set up an international negotiator. There's actually now at the moment four people in the government, this negotiator, the USTR, this Trade Council, and the Secretary of Commerce, all of whom believe they are going to be responsible for negotiating trade deals. Well, and and, and uh, we've also just seen uh, Rudy Giuliani get an appointment just uh, just in recent times here to go oversee the uh, U.S. cyber operations because of his deep expertise in that territory. David, you're a cyber expert. You sound just slightly skeptical. I'm just slightly skeptical. Does now, he have any cyber experience? <laughs> he he runs a security firm that does a small amount of cyber work. But when you think about the when vastness— When it's not bailing its partners out of jail? Yeah, but when you think about the vastness of the cyber enterprise in the United States government from defense to offense, from the NSA to Cyber Command to the Department of Homeland Security to what the FBI is doing, and then a huge effort inside uh, the Pentagon itself— I'm just having a hard time understanding exactly what it is that he's supposed to be doing other than not being secretary of state. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting party game that we could play, Rosa. It's like who's the least qualified person in the Trump administration? Is it Linda McMahon from the world? We already know the answer to that. Donald Trump, but we have the head of a wrestling federation who's running small business. We have Mnuchin who was widely disregarded within Goldman Sachs and, in fact— there's a lot of rumors that Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs doesn't like Mnuchin and that they have already got problems. Um, you've got Bannon, of course, who's got you know nothing to recommend him. Jared Kushner is now an advisor to the president of the United States, whose primary qualification seems to be being his son-in-law. You know, so you know it's it's an interesting mix. There's some capable people in there, and there's some really really bad choices, and some really bad structural decisions that have it look to me, who's written a little bit about this stuff, like instead of structuring this White House like a normal White House, it's being structured like a kind of a loose holding company where there's a bunch of separate entities where he's going to sort of let people go and do their thing, which is kind of how he ran his company, where he'll sort of drop in, drop by, do some marketing, manage the brand. Well, that's and, the same advantages and disadvantages of any holding company. When things go south, you just disaggregate it and jettison portions of it. I, that's how he's worked in the past. I do think it's how he'll work in the future. I don't I, – but, you know, the, I, on some level, there's nothing new about complaints that political appointees are unqualified and previous administrations have had plenty of probably unqualified political appointees. I think what's, what's something that, that you have highlighted in your own work, David – uh, that will be interesting to, to look at is what happens sort of one level down. You know, what happens to the professional bureaucracy, if you will. And there have been sort of obvious uh, shots across the bow fired by by Trump at the federal bureaucracy. Um, but I, but in some ways, I think that that who is the titular head of any given agency matters much less than what that one layer down, who, who's in it, and what they are empowered to do. Uh, because the political folks become irrelevant if the bureaucracy is empowered. On the other hand, if Trump is seriously going to try to dismantle the power of the federal bureaucracy, 
uh, which you know probably plenty of Americans would think was a good idea. Uh, he will also dismantle the remaining breaks on crazy stuff. Uh, let me add um, uh, one point to Rose's excellent point, which will be you know our next mug, right? About Rose's excellent point, um, <laughs> we 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 forget that um, groups that he has most alienated, like the intelligence community, don't live off in some separate walled-off world the way I think people imagine they do from the movies and whatever. Their kids go to the same schools that everybody else's kids go to. They go to the same cocktail parties that everybody else goes to. They're part of the Washington establishment, and they know how to leak. And boy, have you seen that in recent times as President-elect Trump has um, at various moments uh, expressed his anger, disappointment with the intelligence community, compared the leaks that are happening to living in Nazi Germany. And other presidents who have done this briefly, George W. Bush after the uh, Iraq debacle comes to mind, have discovered that the intelligence community's ability to go make your life miserable when you pick up the newspaper in the morning or pick up your iPhone is almost limitless. Is this the deep state that I keep reading about? That must be the deep. I thought that was in Pakistan. Whoa. I don't I you know, I mean Corey, are you part of the deep state? Corey is part of the elite. I wish I was part of the deep state. Corey invented the deep state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I'm secretly controlling the country from Northern California. That's the only, exactly what's the happening. The only deep state I've ever been part of was REM sleep. You know, it's it's like every night. <laughs> you know, that's but I'm you I know I'm, go on. I agree with David Sanger's judgment that can that, can that be it a mug as well? That's I a little agree long. with David Sanger's judgment. That's a little long for a mug. Maybe we could have a water bottle or something. <laughs> it seems to me bad strategy on the part of somebody who has as many potential conflicts of interest, complications, and indiscretions as Donald Trump uh, scatters around as he – as he goes about doing his work, seems to me uh, injudicious to to taunt the interagency, to insult the interagency, uh, and especially the intelligence communities in the various parts of the interagency, to point those out to anyone who cares. I grant Rosa's point that people may not care. Well, I I, I think we're still talking as though it matters what's in the newspaper in the morning. And and David actually has something I haven't seen in in many years uh, here in the studio. He has a a physical paper copy of the New York Times in front of him. We call it the dead tree edition. I wanted to remind you of what it it looks like. Well, and it's very handsome. It's it's a nice looking product. Um, It's also part of an intellectual hamster wheel. Right. Where Sanger reads the Times to learn stuff that he, that he can write Times. and put in the Times. Yeah. You know, that's and it's, genius. It's genius. It's so but but but. You know, we we still That's are. That's why part, I read Rose's stuff. Actually, <laughs> we're part of a tiny, dwindling group of people who read editorials of the New York Times, and the New York Times editorial board says 
Donald Trump should be seriously concerned about blah, 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 blah. And we go, my goodness, that's right. Donald Trump should be seriously concerned. And Donald Trump thinks, ha, 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 fuck you, right? And Donald Trump's supporters think, ha, 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 fuck you, right? And and so I No, I, I think I am what not... Donald Trump thinks is Kim should lose a little more weight right. because <laughs> Kanye is going to go Who is that and... man they're talking about? Right. He seems like a handsome fellow. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but so, so, so I mean, I do think that I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong about this. But I do think that we may have tipped so far into the post-truth, post-authority era that it doesn't matter if the intelligence community wants to make his life miserable. It doesn't matter if Congress holds nasty hearings unless they impeach him, which seems very unlikely because they're a bunch of craven cowards, too. Uh, you know, so what? So what? He, the New York Times can have an editorial every single day which denounces him. But it doesn't matter to him at all. You know, there's an argument that doesn't matter. There's a second argument which goes uh, like this, that in fact, while he pretends it doesn't matter, he watches TV incessantly, cares a lot about what's on CNN, MSNBC. That he Apparently not enough to actually answer any questions from CNN at his press conference. That's a, that's a different Because he was so question. rude to ask a question. question. Um, that he somewhat, I think, seeks the approval of institutions like – the Times or even the federal bureaucracy or whatever, that he he wants to be taken as a very serious player. And that came through in our interviews with him last year. But you said he was an idiot. I no. mean, it seemed to recall you like came out of these interviews and you were like, well, I asked him a question about cyber and he was like, humana, humana, computers are really important. Barron knows a the, lot about computers. The cyber is very powerful. <laughs> cyber is, <laughs> the cyber is very – but it, I mean, he said this kind of nonsense. He doesn't know anything about this stuff. That's a, that's a different point, David, from the one I'm making, which is that he very much wants to get the approval of the establishment. Well, in that case, though, we are all following the wrong strategy for dealing with a narcissist, which is to say all these editorials denounce him will have the opposite effect. They'll hurt his feelings. They'll make him lash out. The Times should be dedicating itself to editorials that say things like, Donald Trump, who is both very handsome and very intelligent, we, we, we know that such a handsome and intelligent person will do such and such because he's so handsome and intelligent. Well, you know uh, something? I'm taking notes. We'll yeah. see if we can get that. You, you, you know something, Rosa? That's that how you get a narcissist to do what you want. You have accidentally, as we've come into the final couple minutes of this episode, stumbled upon a substantive point. Oh, thank God. Um, <laughs> At last. And, and, if you, if you put three people on the ER long enough and, and you let the clock run, it, it'll happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but so, Corey, I was talking to someone who is a let's just let's just say a cabinet official in the current administration. Um, if you listen to this before next Friday, and 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 we were talking about what is the strategy for dealing with Trump. And they said they had been talking to a lot of countries around the world, ministers in other countries around the world. And interestingly, a lot of these ministers aren't worried about Trump's talk of trade wars. They're not worried about Trump's talk of being a tough guy because they all believe that what they can do is co-opt him with a deal. They can say, hey, Mr. Trump, why don't we buy a bunch of airplanes and you can take credit for buying the airplanes? And then Trump will say, hey, I scored a victory, they folks. They can say, please don't throw me in the briar patch. And, 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 and so all you got to do is sort of buy him a drink that he can take credit for. The carrier strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. 
What do you think? What do you think, Corey? I mean, th- this lit- this was a very senior person who's been who's literally talked to dozens and dozens of foreign leaders in the past couple of months, and they, and and they really feel that what Rosa has said is the way to play Trump. I'm like a political which, genius. You you are like a political I'm, genius. Under- like, like a flat out much genius, like a Rosa. You are a flat out genius, Rosa. Thank Another you. mug. Uh, uh, um, and but but Corey, what do you what do you think? Is that is isn't I mean, this is kind of, you know, almost more interesting than the Russia stuff, which is, you know, sort of they got their claws into it. It's how do you play this dupe on the international stage? Yeah, I I do think that's a smart question for foreign ministries and chanceries around the world to be asking themselves. And that seems to me like quite a good answer. The only complication with that is if it stops working. If those diabolical New York Times journalists so often reveal it these up for deals the rest of us. as not actually having any substance to them, or worse, um, the president of the United States looking stupid because he's trumpeting deals as magnificent for the country when, in fact, he's getting his lunch money taken. I, I recommend that everybody go and reread or rewatch The Last King of Scotland, depending on whether you prefer uh, movies or books, uh, because the, the ways in which What's people tried book? to handle Idi Amin, uh, the crazed Ugandan dictator, by, by massaging his ego, which sometimes worked until it didn't, and he locked you in jail for the next six years with the rats, uh, it's probably going to be a useful useful book or movie. Uh, David, I won't. I'll tell you later what a book is for us to survive the <laughs> survive the Trump administration. Um, yeah, well, I think, but I think, I think it is. Except, you know, the only difference between him and Idi Amin is that Idi Amin had a lot of power over those people, but the foreign leaders feel that Trump doesn't actually have a lot of power over them, and that you know, essentially, what they want to do is manage him while he's there because they see him as a temporary passing phenomena. That could be true, and it could be a fantasy on their part. I mean, if you assume that in the end you're going to get a presidency that started off sounding wildly radical and gets pulled back in by the likes of Tillerson and Mattis and Pompeo and others to something that is just a, a, uh, a more hawkish sounding version of the Bush administration, then that theory works. If, on the other hand, you have a crisis that comes up to which he reacts in an unconventional way, they may revise their view. Well, that's true. But I mean, first of all, there's 200 of them out there and, you know, some of them will have a crisis, but most of them won't. And, and you know, most international relations are sort of down on a simmer, you know, they're not on a boil, and and they become manageable in this way. Um, anyway, we shall see. You know, it's really interesting times we live in. Uh, that's why the ER is here. You know, I'd like the, these these episodes to go on longer and longer. And I've gotten some emails and tweets from people who said this is the shortest podcast I listen to. I wish it were an hour long. And you know, we time this. For the average workout of the average ER nerd who listens to it. Seven minutes? Seven minutes (laughs) plus 33 minutes of warm-up and cool-down. You've been in my gym. (laughs) Which is basically watching, you know, Morning Joe or drinking box wine or whatever it is 
that they do out there um, while they're preparing for their seven minutes of exercise. If you ER nerds get in better shape and work out longer, we'll do longer podcasts, but we don't want to kill you. We feel there's a certain degree of liability that if this goes on longer, you'll have skinny-legged ER nerds collapsing on treadmills across America. Um, and that would be tragic. I, I thought you told me your plan for 2017 was that we were going to do this while on the treadmill. We will. We will. That will yeah. make these podcasts very short. <laughs> <laughs> but much more breathless. <laughs> yeah. it's, we, we, we're going to start next week. There will be a big bowl of steroids on the table. And we'll, we're going to see how roid rage works for one of these things. Corey, of course, doesn't have this problem. She's in California. Everybody works out all the time. And, in fact, she's doing it from the Hoover Institution <laughs> hot tub slash studio. <laughs> Exactly right, David. Exactly right, David. There's a bug. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. Come back soon. There's obviously more to come on all of these fronts. And if uh, David Sanger doesn't break it first, then we'll break it here on the ER. See you soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host, the program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>